0: brought to you by Lifetree at Jesus.com. My name again is Rick, I'm author of Spiritual Grit, the book that came out last year, The Jesus-Centered Life, which is sort of a foundational book on which this podcast is based, and I'm editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, which has been out for uh, four years now. And as we've been talking about on the podcast in this series, Death to Life, we are uh, pointing you toward, particularly toward, The Jesus-Centered Bible as Easter approaches uh, as a fantastic way, you know, it's funny that we give gifts at Christmas, obviously, because we have this tradition of giving gifts on birthdays, and we recognize the birth of Jesus at Christmas, but we don't give gifts at Easter, which is our rebirth birthday. (laughs) That's what that signifies. Easter signifies life out of death, our rebornness. So why not start a new tradition and give those that you love a small token of something that represents life to them, whatever that is? And I'm suggesting giving them the gift of a Jesus-centered Bible. Wow. The Gospel of John starts out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, basically. So Jesus, is one of his nicknames is the Word, so why not give the very source of life to someone and give them a Jesus-centered Bible. So there'll be links on our podcast page at Jesus.com or if you'd prefer not to type in all of those words, you could go to lifetree.com, or if you want it even shorter, you could go to group.com. Any of those places, you can search for the Jesus-centered Bible and the journals we've created that that are companions to it, and and also the array of devotions that we have that that link into our whole Jesus-centered focus. So today is our last episode in our on-ramp into the Easter season, and again, this series is called Death to Life. And in the Kingdom of God, here's a truth about the Kingdom of God. Death is never an endpoint, it's treated as an aberration. So life from death is the dominant theme of Scripture, and in that dominant theme, as Jesus uh, not only points to patterns and rhythms of death to life, but he also embodies this seasonal pattern of death to life. And he's not merely pointing us to life, he is life itself. Jesus described himself and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he's not like a lot of other rabbis, or a lot of other good teachers, in that they are pointing us to the truth, or pointing us to a pathway to live, Or pointing us to life itself, Jesus is different from all of those people and says, I am the thing itself, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Another way of saying that is, if the river is sort of the outcome of wherever the waters have sprung from the earth, so either the headwaters, or you could say the spring bubbling up from underneath the earth, Is the real source of that stream or that river. And so Jesus is saying, you don't need more river in your life, you need more spring. You need need the source of this water, and that's what I am. So life is at the core of the kingdom, and today we're going to explore a mystery that is right in front of our noses relative to the Easter story, but we don't often recognize it as a mystery. So after his crucifixion and death, and the removal and internment of Jesus' body, we have this strange interlude between the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. It is these three days in darkness that are the mystery sitting right in front of us, and and here's why it's a mystery. Couldn't it have been true that as soon as it was declared that Jesus was indeed dead, that he was immediately resurrected? Wouldn't it have proven the same thing, that the resurrection and life of Jesus overcame death, what was the purpose of three days in the dark? Why was it necessary for Jesus to stay for three days in the tomb? And this, by the way, isn't like a happenstance thing. From the very beginnings of Jesus' ministry, this idea of him going away for three days in this liminal space of darkness for three days, he started to plant this idea early on And repeated and repeated again, it is maybe the most mentioned theme in Jesus's teaching is this whole prophetic pointing forward to these three days. It's very specific, it's not, you know, in 48 hours-ish, you know, it's always very specific to three days. So we're gonna hear the story of Jesus's passage from life to death to life again, I'm going to do something that we don't often do in the podcast, where I'm going to walk through that story, that passage, but I'm going to take parts from different Gospels to sort of fill out the story, because each one of the four Gospels looks at this passage from death to life differently, and they add different details. I'm going to try to merge those details into one story, so it's going to be a, a lengthier version of this story than we usually hear. But before we do that, let's take a look at some of the foreshadowing of these three days in the dark that are continually referenced throughout the Gospel. So let's start off with Jesus saying this in Matthew 12. He says, For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Now just imagine you're they're listening, you're a disciple or a Pharisee, you're either a friend or an enemy, and you're listening to them say this, and it makes absolutely no sense, because when somebody starts to talk about a reality that has never happened before, and this is thing is going to happen in the future, of course you're confused about what this means, you don't have any frame of reference or context for it. But nevertheless, Jesus is quite specific. You know, just as Jonah was in the belly of that fish, in the dark, in a horrible place for three days and three nights... The Son of Man, me, I'm going to be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights in a horrible place. Again, to the par- uh, the Pharisees in John chapter 2, he says, All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, this was kind of a big deal when he said this, because it was not only confusing, but it was offensive. The The Pharisees and teachers of the law were like saying, It's taken decades to build this temple, and you say you're going to tear it down in three days? They obviously didn't get that he was speaking metaphorically about himself, in this. But later on, his accusers, in front of Pilate, brought up this thing that Jesus said. It was such a, an offensive, distinctive thing that he said about this whole three days, destroy the temple, and build it back up again, that his accusers brought it up as evidence that he should be crucified. So this is what they said to in front of Pilate. They said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So they bring up this same thing that Jesus proclaimed still not understanding what he meant by it, that it was metaphorical. And then he gets this from his critics and his abusers at the cross. So these are people that are looking on as he's being crucified, and they say, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you're the Son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. So they're they're saying that, hey— Remember that thing you said, that offensive, ridiculous thing you said? Why don't you get down off that cross? Because if you said you're going to do that, you haven't done that yet, so you better get down off the cross and do that. Again, to his disciples, it says this in Mark chapter 8, Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. So here he's not even speaking metaphorically to his disciples. He's telling him straight out, here's what's going to happen to me. Even so, when he's blunt about it, when he's trying to be specific about what's going to happen to him, it's so outside of their understanding that they they just can't grasp what he's saying. What do you mean you're going to be in the dark, in the dead for three days, and then come back? That doesn't happen in life. So he repeats this same thing over and over and over again. It's amazing when you start to look for it how many times— He reiterates this in Mark chapter 9. It says, He said to them, his disciples, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies, and he'll be killed. But three days later, he'll rise from the dead. And again in Mark 10, They will mock me, spit on me, flog me with a whip, and kill me. But after three days, I'm going to rise again. This theme, after three days, after three days, three days in the dark, three days in the dead— is repeated and repeated and repeated and emphasized and highlighted all throughout the Gospels and the question that sits there again is why? Why is this three-day period such a big deal to the Trinity that it becomes this repeated rhythm in Jesus's teaching and his conversation and his instructions to his disciples? So now's a good time to just pause and read the account of Jesus's passage from the cross To the resurrection, and slow down. That's our theme here. Paying ridiculous attention to Jesus means we slow down and pay better attention to mysteries, to mud puddles, to things that we usually skip over. And by the way, this whole three-day liminal space in the dark is a huge mud puddle. I call a mud puddle something that when an adult comes up to a mud puddle, we typically jump over it or jump around it, But when a little kid comes up to a mud puddle, they often jump into it and wallow around it and splash around in there. And the mud puddles in Scripture are stories and encounters and truths that we come up to and we don't really understand them. We don't have a a deeper apprehension of what's going on in this encounter or what this truth really is. But as adults, we just jump over it. We say something to ourselves as we're leaping over the mud puddle, well, that's Jesus for you. He's meant to be a mystery. So we jump over those things. And instead the invitation is, well, let's be children and jump into the puddle and wallow around and splash around in there. So let's jump into the puddle today with the passage of Jesus from the cross to the resurrection. So we're going to start here, and this account draws from several different of the Gospels, so I'm going to transition amongst these different accounts to get a more full-bodied account of what happened. So let's start. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. Now this is Jesus on the cross um, sensing that his mission was finished now, and so he says on the cross, I am thirsty, and a jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished, and then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I just want to point out, by the way, there are so many specific details in these accounts, because These accounts are coming from eyewitnesses, people who were right there at the cross, in this case John, the disciple who always described himself as the disciple Jesus loved. This is his eyewitness account of what was there. He is the only of the disciples that is there at the cross, along with Mary and Martha and some of his other friends. So John was right there witnessing this, so you get these tiny little details that there was sour wine sitting there, and they soaked it in a sponge, and they put it on the end of a hyssop branch. So John was there seeing all this happen. Now we shift back into Matthew's Gospel, this very same scene, and here's how he records it. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. This is as Jesus is heading toward the giving up of his spirit on the cross. So at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. And at about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. But the rest said, Wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. And then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, "'Rocks split apart and tombs opened. "'The bodies of many godly men and women who had died "'were raised from the dead. "'They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection "'and went into the holy city of Jerusalem "'and appeared to many people. "'The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion "'were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened, "'and they said, "'This man truly was the Son of God. "'And many women who had come from Galilee with Jesus "'to care for him were watching from a distance. "'Among them were Mary Magdalene, "'Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, shifting back to John. It was the day of preparation, and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath because it was Passover week. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus, but when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs." One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness, this is a parenthetical statement John makes, this report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you may also continue to believe. Now he gets back to the account. These things happened in fulfillment of the scriptures that say, not one of his bones will be broken, and they will look on the one they pierced. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial customs, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden, where there was a new tomb never used before. And so, because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Shifting back to Matthew here, Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth. He placed it in his own new tomb, which had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and left. Both Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting across from the tomb and watching, again. Eyewitnesses to all that happened here. The next day on the Sabbath, the leading priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate. They told him, Sir, we remember what that deceiver once said while he was still alive. Now catch this. We remember what he said when he was still alive. After three days I will rise from the dead. So Jesus had repeated this enough that and had offended enough people that they all remembered that he had said this. And now they're worried that he said this. So picking back up again, they say to Pilate, So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. So Pilate replied, take guards and secure it the best you can. So they sealed the tomb and posted guards to protect it. So sealing the tomb was a official way of making sure that no one could tamper with the opening of that tomb And then placing Roman guards in front of it meant that you were placing people who were sworn to defend their duty and keep anyone from entering that tomb at the uh, possibility of the punishment that would require their own life, meaning that those soldiers, if they did not uphold their duty, could be executed for having not completed their duty. So this was taking extraordinary measures to make sure nothing fishy happened with the body of Jesus in this tomb back into John's account again. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Now we're Friday, Saturday, now Sunday morning. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and that's John, and she said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they hadn't, still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Well, then they went home. Well, Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. "'Dear woman, why are you crying?' the angels asked her. "'Because they've taken away my Lord,' she replied, "'and I don't know where they've put him.' She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. "'Dear woman, why are you crying?' Jesus asked her, Who are you looking for? Well, she thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, please tell me where you've put him and I'll go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and found the disciples and told them, I've seen the Lord. And then she gave them his message. Well, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Then he breathed on them, and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So here we have this longer version of this account with additional detail from another gospel. And the question remains, why three days? Why so specifically this waiting period? Why a waiting period that, through eyewitness detail, was guaranteed to be three days, that even his accusers were worried some fishy business was going to happen, and so they guaranteed that this three days of darkness were going to happen? Why so much time? Well, I think it's—to it's, it's to get at the answer to that, um, I think it's good to focus on some other similar times that were like this three-day waiting period, why that all of these things, by the way, are related to death and the certainty of death. And so if we look at some similar encounters and circumstances that Jesus faced, well, we discover that this whole certainty of death thing, the priority of highlighting how death was certain in this situation happens pretty often. So for instance, in John chapter 11, when Jesus is asked by Mary and Martha to come heal their brother and Jesus' close friend Lazarus from an illness that was going to take his life, and Jesus purposefully delays, causing his good friend Lazarus to be buried in a tomb very much like the future that Jesus saw for himself and had proclaimed over and over again was going to happen to him, he plunges his best friend Lazarus into this same reality, where Lazarus is in the tomb, in the dark, and he makes sure it happens. And then when he finally does come, and there is weeping and grieving, and Lazarus was such an important person to so many people, there's so much mourning going on, And Jesus sees their grief, and he weeps right along with them. But Jesus, in this case, has orchestrated this whole thing to be a very public raising of the dead. When he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, despite the protests of the people that are gathered there at the tomb... When he calls Lazarus out of the tomb and Lazarus comes walking out of the tomb, he's intending to do this in the most public way he can. It's almost like he has scripted and artfully conceived what happens here to have maximum in public impact, to make sure that this story, what happens here with Lazarus, is spread as far as a story can be spread. And he was right. What he does here does get spread far and wide in the ancient world that Jesus did this so publicly, but he didn't always do things like this publicly. In Matthew chapter 9, we have the encounter Jesus has with the woman who has the issue of blood, but we sometimes forget that Jesus was on his way, at the request of a leader of the synagogue, to heal his daughter, who was gravely ill. So time was of the essence, of course, and Jesus stops instead to engage this woman who has an issue of blood, and by the time he continues on his way, the daughter has died, and, and a servants come to tell the synagogue leader, don't bother the master anymore, she's already passed away. But Jesus shows up at the synagogue leader's house, where the little girl is lying dead in a bedroom, and says to the crowd, she's not dead, she's just asleep, and they literally laugh at him And then Jesus says, I want all of you people out of here. He empties the house to make it private. It's just him and the synagogue leader who has asked him to come. And in that private space, he raises this dead girl up from death into life, and then she walks out of the house and appears. But it's interesting that he chooses to do this privately at this point. There is something he's trying, to, he's trying to make a point here about death and life, and he's doing it in two different ways, one privately, one publicly. The public one actually happens a bit later in his ministry than the private one. He's trying to make a statement, make a point about the primacy of life over death, but at first he starts out trying to contain that a little bit by doing it privately. Later on, he expands it to do it publicly. There's another, another encounter where uh, the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus, and they're, they're bringing a message from, their, from John the Baptist, who is trying to figure out whether Jesus is truly the Messiah. He's looking for evidence. And Jesus responds to them and says, go tell John this, the blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear. The dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. So this is Jesus' sly answer to the disciples of John the Baptist to t- carry this message back to back to their leader. Uh, instead of just answering yes, I'm him, he in you know, a kind of a wink and a nod uh, says to John the Baptist, "Hey, I know you're paying attention, and you know what evidences the Messiah brings with him, and these are those evidences." Let me go over those again. The blind will see, the lame will walk. Those who have leprosy, which is an incurable illness, are cured. The deaf can hear again. The dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. So he ticks off all of the boxes that John the Baptist will certainly know, describe what the Messiah does. And embedded in the middle of that is this extraordinary thing that the dead are raised to life. Or or what about... This other strange thing that happened that we we just read about when we slowly move through this passage of Jesus' death to, to life again, this strange thing that happened when Jesus says, finally, I give up my spirit, and his spirit passes out of him, and he's dead on the cross. A number of things happen in rapid succession as soon as that moment happens. There's an earthquake, we know, and the the curtain in the temple is torn in two, and the curtain represented a necessary separation from the holy presence of God and the people who would come to serve in the temple. And that curtain is ripped in half, so there's no longer any separation, no longer any mitigation in our intimacy with God. In this moment when Jesus dies, not when he's resurrected, does this happen? It's when he dies and pays the price for our separation from God in relationship, that curtain in the temple tears in two. But then this other strange thing happens in that same moment. Here's the account of it from Matthew chapter 27. Then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. And at that moment, again, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, the earth shook, rocks split apart, tombs opened. Then this the bodies of many godly men and women who have died were raised from the dead. And they left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city of Jerusalem and appeared to many people. Can you imagine if you happen to be walking past the cemetery at the moment Jesus gave up his spirit, and you see these above-ground tombs made of stone— like little, they're, they're like little enclosures, little houses. I don't know if you've ever been to the Middle East and have seen these, but you're walking past the cemetery and you see this stone in, the stone entrances of these things being pushed open and people walking out of their tombs, out of the cemetery. It's like a scene from The Walking Dead, only these people aren't zombies. They're alive again. They not only walk out of the cemetery, it says they went into Jerusalem and appeared to many people to show, hey, one of the consequences, one of the immediate catalysts of the death of Jesus on the cross is not just earthquakes and temple curtains being ripped, but life comes back into death, regenerates those who are dead. We don't even know how long these people who walked out of the cemetery have been lying there dead, but what we do know is that life regenerates back into them And they go and appear in Jerusalem so that many people see them. This is like a huge fireworks display on the 4th of July. This is an orchestrated outcome of the death of Jesus on the cross. It's almost like, um, if you didn't get the message about life over death, here, let me do this. Let me shoot up a really big display of fireworks and have people come out of the cemetery that have been dead for a while. What is the message of all of this, that this, this, the certainty of death, the, not just a night in the tomb with Jesus, but Friday night and Saturday night in the tomb, into the third day, where the same is true with Lazarus, that Lazarus has been in his tomb multiple days, that there's no doubt that this person is dead. There's zero conjecture about whether or not the person is dead. Whether you consider the moment of death, when they pass on, or now when you consider many days after that, it's not possible that they could be alive in the darkness of their circumstances. And even more so with Jesus, the tomb of seal that has soldiers in front of it, all of this designed to accentuate for us that the death here is certain, except the death is not certain because death in the presence of life must give way. The message that Jesus in the Trinity is trying to communicate to us, to humanity who are slow to understand the nature of God himself, that the message they're trying to communicate is, death is nothing to me. Death is a cold to get over. Life is the point. The same life that created and regenerated Jesus— the same life that created us, regenerated us, helped us to become reborn, the same life that created a universe so vast that we still have not discovered even a fraction of all of it, the same life that creates the life that's all around you right now, that life is an overwhelming presence in the universe, and death is nothing in the face of that life. This overemphasis of the three days in the dark, the cropping up over and over again, of Jesus purposefully making sure that everyone knows a death has occurred so that when life shows up, there's no doubt something has happened here, The the certainty that life trumps death is the point. And this is really, really the point of Holy Week for us as we enter into it, is to not so much fixate on death as the great and the you know like from the Wizard of Oz the great and terrible Oz. We think of death the same way the great and terrible death. The point of Holy Week is not to re-embrace how dark and dangerous death is, but to recognize what Jesus is doing here and what the Trinity is trying to do. They're trying to put death into perspective. They're trying to contrast the fear that we have of death, with the overwhelming power of life itself, and that death cannot remain dead in the presence of life. The wellspring of life itself, it cannot exist in his presence. And this is the gift that Jesus really is giving us in the end. When he invites us to, as dead branches, to be grafted into his living vine, what he's offering us is the the life that can't be conquered by death, the life that smirks at death, that treats death as a small issue to be dealt with, that treats death as a temporary source of our grief, but which has no power in the face of life. This is what he's inviting us into when he says, abide in me, let your branch be grafted into me, and receive my life. It's the same life that scoffs at death. So how do we embrace the primacy of life over death in our life? What does that look like? Here's some things to think about as we head toward this Easter weekend, that ways that you can worship Jesus during this week by living your life with the primacy of life in your heart. So we can adopt, for instance, the same attitude toward death that Jesus did in our life. We can begin to think and respond the way Jesus did relative to death, the way I would sort of condense down uh, Jesus' response to the reality of death is simply, who do you think you are? (laughs) Death? Who the heck do you think you are? Do you know who you're standing in front of? Get out of my way go away. You no longer have any power. You have no right or privilege to dictate anything to me. So, what would it look like if we adopted this similar attitude that Jesus had toward death? Death, who do you think you are? And I'm not here just talking about physical death, the ultimate death that we all that is really represents our greatest fear in life. I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about any source of death that tries to raise itself up against us. I'm talking about the death words we hear from other people who try to destroy our identity. I'm talking about the attitude of death that says our rights are more important than the life of another. I'm talking about death in any face that it has, and being able to say back to that expression of death, who do you think you are? You cannot stand in the presence of life. Or we can paraphrase Winston Churchill. I have this plaque over our kitchen sink at our home that I've mentioned before on the podcast. I love this thing that Winston Churchill said. During the Blitz, he, he was invited to speak at his alma mater, which is an all-boys boarding school, and the people of England were getting a pounding from the Nazi, the, the Luftwaffe, the Nazi Air Force. And it was really They faced so many obstacles, and it looked so dire. It would have been easy to imagine, let's just give up. We can't endure any more of this bombing. And in the middle of that, Winston Churchill went to his alma mater and gave a speech, and it was designed not just to speak to the boys gathered there, but to the whole country. And the crescendo of that speech, which was—by the way, it's worth looking up that speech. Maybe uh, Julia can find a link to Winston Churchill's speech and you can read the whole thing, and it's remarkable what he said in the midst of this darkness. But at the end of that speech, there's a crescendo, and he says, Never, never give up. Never, never, never give up. So those are the words we have burned into this kind of barnwood over our kitchen sink. But here's a way that you can take that and paraphrase it a little bit to embrace in the reality that the life of Jesus has primacy over death. Here's a way that you can embrace that this Holy Week. Inside, you can speak to yourself. That This practice of, of having a conversation with ourselves and repeating back to ourselves the truth is an important one, and, and as much as we want to reflect back the truth to those that we love in our life, we often forget to reflect back the truth to our own selves, who are often the ones that need it the most. So This is something you can say silently or in a whisper to yourself throughout the day. You can say, never, never, never give up and never give in to death. Never, never give up and never give in to death. Why? Because I have the life of Jesus in me. And if I'm confronted with the specter of death, we look it in the eye, we jut out our chin and say, I am not giving in to you which is essentially what Winston Churchill was trying to help these boys that he was speaking to, he was trying to help them adopt this same mentality. They felt like death was about to overtake their beloved country, and death was about to destroy their lives. And he was essentially saying, look that death in the eye and say, we are never giving up. That's a way that you can worship Jesus and adopt a life over death, mentality this week. Another way is to draw near to life itself and let life wash over you. So the heart of Jesus is the wellspring of life. In his heart is the very fountain or the source of all of living water. That's why when he offered the woman at the well outside the city of Sychar living water, what he was really saying is, I offer you myself. I am the wellspring of life. So, when we draw near to life itself, life then washes over us. Meaning, as we draw near to the heart of Jesus, we slow down, savor his heart, ask ourselves over and over again, why did he say that or do that? Which is an open door into his heart when we ask that question. Why did he say that or do that? We are approaching his heart, we are walking through that open door. And when we just sit and immerse ourselves, let it wash over us, the truth about his heart, then what's happening to us as we draw near to Jesus is that life itself washes over us. If the heart of Jesus is the wellspring of life, then get close to that wellspring. Let it splash on you. And then if you struggle with wrestling with death in any of its forms— It doesn't have to be a fear, just a fear of death, as I mentioned. But if you struggle with the specter of death in your life, then get close to the spring of life. Let it wash over you, because as you get wet and soaked in life, death will fade. Like our thirst fades when we finally get a drink of water, the specter of death fades when we drink in life. And that simply means drink in more of Jesus and pay attention to his heart. Here's the last thing that I think we can do this Holy Week. What about our desire, our generous desire, to offer life to others? How can we live this out in our lives, where we are sources of life to others? Well here's here's an unusual way to honor Jesus and to draw people into life itself. and This is gonna sound funny at the start, but I think this is such an important thing that we can do for others in our life. We can tell them our own stories of three days in the dark. What's your story of living in the liminal space of the cave of death, of the tomb, where things seem certainly to have died, where your dreams, your hopes, whatever it is that you've placed your life's hope in, whatever that thing is, What does it look like to tell that story to the people around you? Most people don't know our stories of three days in the dark. They don't know our tomb stories, because they're such vulnerable stories to tell, and they're so sensitive in our life that we we don't often tell these stories. But when we don't tell our own stories of three days in the dark, then we're not sharing with people our own resurrection story. So to tell your story of three days in the dark, you're telling that story by definition, not inside the tomb. You are living. You have passed the, the point of the story, the, those three days in the dark. You have lived to tell it. And in telling your story of three days in the dark, you are offering hope to people who don't see hope past the tomb. They see the place that they're in as an end point, and what Jesus is trying to communicate is the tomb is not an endpoint. so tell your story, because your story is on the other side of the tomb. It will, in a kind of a sideways way, give people hope that there is life on the other side of this, and that's really the message of Easter. There is life on the other side of the death. To share your story of death, of your own story of three days in the tomb, Is to offer them the hope of the life on the other side of that. If you've never done that before, this week would be a good week to do that. In our family, we have, as broken and messy as we are, we try to tell our own stories of three days in the cave all the time to our kids. And that means our own stories of when we lost hope, or when things just seemed like they weren't working out, and is this ever going to work out, or great disappointment in our life, or a time when we made a decision that really destroyed things in our life, we try to tell these stories, these micro-stories of our own three days in the dark, to let our kids know that the Resurrection life is real, that the, the power of life over that death moment is real. Life beats death. In a way, it harkens back to the first thing that I said we can do during this, this Holy Week time. Those stories... Essentially, say, Death, who do you think you are? And those are important stories to tell. Thanks for listening, gang. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail on Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com or LiveTree.com or Group.com. You're just looking for our podcast section and you're looking for Season 4, Episode 14. Again, if you have uh, friends who are maybe um, you're inviting to church for the first time, maybe uh, you know some people who. Only go to church for Easter or Christmas, and um, you're going to be inviting them to your church this week. This would be a great podcast to share with them as they are experiencing the message of death to life in the Easter service you're going to. Send this link to them as a way to follow up their own story and to uh, give you an excuse to have another conversation with them. So, again, it's season four, episode 14. Remember to check out the Jesus-Centered Bible and the journals and devotions again, and you can go to uh, lifetree.com for all those links, or group.com and check them out. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, it's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next time. I think the Becky Nader will be back with us the next episode.